welcome to Snescapades, a chronological journey through the North American Super Nintendo Library, three games at a time usually. We play them briefly, we judge them harshly, and we rank them. That's pretty much all you need to know. I am Steampunk Link. I am Emmy Zero. And folks, we have got a lot to talk about. We've, we've got so much to talk about, we had to push a game out into next week because I was doing research for this and... Look, we're talking about Looney Tunes. We're talking about X-Men. There's a lot of history behind both of these things. Yeah, both the the properties and the games based on them that we're going to talk about today. So, yeah, yeah, it turns out that like just there's a story behind everything and we're going to talk a lot of history today. We're probably going to talk more history than games today because um I don't think either of us is all that impressed by either of these games. No, I don't think so either. I will say though up front, there's a little more to these games than some of the stuff we've played recently. I will not be surprised if we look back on this episode and say, oh yeah, that was much more of a history lesson than anything else. But that's okay, you know, that we enjoy doing that. I enjoy doing it anyway. I, I, I very I much enjoy it, yeah. And I guess we're just going to get right to it. I don't, I don't know if I've got a whole lot else uh, preamble here. I think we should just go ahead and get into it. We're still in November 1992. Our games today, Roadrunner's Death Valley Rally and Spider-Man and the X-Men Arcade's Revenge. Yep. Two very cumbersome titles. So yes, indeed. <laughs> let's cue the music. You guys are all going to recognize this one, I'm sure. So, uh, in case you were wondering, that tune is called Merrily We Roll Along. Actually credited in the opening titles of this game. It took me a minute to realize, oh yeah, there's actually two Looney Tunes songs. There's this one, and then there's also uh, another one I think is called Mer- The Merry-Go-Round Broke Down. Yeah, that's the one that gets the the actual, like, sh- the name of it gets an actual shout-out in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yes, well, because um, Eddie Valiant actually, like, makes up lyrics to it. And I think Roger does, too, at some point in that movie, right? Yeah, yeah, Merry-Go-Round Broke Down, I guess is probably kind of the more famous one of these two this is going to be the the first of many looney tunes games i think that we're going to be covering on the system um got a a lot of games based on looney tunes characters i think uh, bugs bunny gets at least one daffy duck i think gets one porky pig speedy gonzalez gets his own game speedy gonzalez was a popular character in the 90s i will just say that yeah i'm not sure if um speedy is still like a character that they bring out of mothballs every now and then yeah I, I don't think they touch speedy anymore to be fair i haven't watched any like new looney tunes material in a very long time oh yeah same i don't really know what they're doing in those things i guess the new looney tunes cartoons they're doing for like hbo max are trying to be very old school in some ways so we'll go into a little bit of the history of looney tunes and merry melodies here so these were a series of cartoon shorts produced by warner brothers from 1931 to 19 19- 1969 and uh, between 1934 and 1943 the merry melody series were typically in color and were meant to be like one-shot stories rather than featuring recurring characters like the looney tunes lineup of like porky pig and and bosco anyone remember bosco Good no bosco <laughs> they they do not use bosco anymore and i can't remember what the character looked like but i bet there's a reason why he looks a little bit blackfacey is why yeah that's what i thought yeah okay. yeah and i th- and i think they actually just straight up lost access to the character at some point um and oh, okay. kind of like just straight up replaced him with another character called buddy who while not as problematic is still not really referenced because i don't think people liked his cartoons as much or maybe they just uh-huh. don't resonate with modern audiences i don't know 
In any case, this isn't about Bosco or Porky Pig or any of those older characters. This is about Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner, who made their debut in 1949 in a Merry Melody short called Fast and Furious. Wow. Uh, the short was directed by Chuck Jones, a man with hundreds of cartoons under his belt and is well known by any animation junkie. And it was written by Michael Maltese. Uh, the pair are typically credited as the creators of the characters. Wiley and Roadrunner, uh, who does not have an actual name, it turns out. I, I checked, and it doesn't seem like he does. It's, it's just the Roadrunner. It's just the Roadrunner. Uh, they have appeared in 49 shorts together, although Wiley has also appeared in other uh, shorts as a Bugs Bunny antagonist. They have appeared in pretty much all three of the movies that the Looney Tunes characters have been in, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Space Jam, and Looney Tunes Back in Action. It's so weird that those are the only three movies those characters have been in. They've also made cameos in cartoons like Animaniacs, Tiny Toons, and were reimagined as characters in the show Lunatics Unleashed. Oh, now I remember that thing. People got so mad about it. Do you remember how mad people were about Lunatics? I don't remember how mad people were. I remember thinking that show was weird. I never actually saw it. I think I missed the brief window when it was on television. The, the whole premise was like, oh, it's way in the future and it's sci-fi and they're all like these gritty sci-fi heroes now. It was very strange. I don't know why you would do that with those characters. Roadrunner and Coyote have been parodied and referenced in more shows than I care to list here. Basically, you probably already knew who these characters were. You didn't need me to tell you. Despite their prominence, though, I will still say I think it's a little bit weird that this is the first Looney Tunes game that we're getting, like a Roadrunner game. Yeah, that is, it is surprising that it's not a Bugs Bunny or Daffy Duck game. This game was developed by ICOM Simulations. This company was formed in 1981, originally as TMQ Software, until uh, they changed the name in 1984. The company started out in Illinois, and their claim to fame is primarily the Mac Adventure series. These were a quartet of point-and-click adventure games made primarily for the Apple Macintosh, although these games would later get ported to all sorts of other systems and consoles. Uh, the original Mac Venture games were the Detective Noir series Deja Vu and Deja Vu 2, the horror-themed game The Uninvited, and a fantasy-themed game called Shadowgate. I was a huge fan of the NES version of Deja Vu when I was a kid. I got that game from like a yard sale or something, knew nothing about it, and it was uh, it was just a really cool, really atmospheric point-and-click adventure game, which uh, those did not exist on the NES for the most part. Maybe all of these games came out on the NES at one point. So these games were like pretty popular in Japan, I think. And they all got conversions by Japanese companies to uh, home consoles. Great music in that game. Uh, anyway, this is this, sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. Here. This, this but, is what yeah. I'm talking about with these games. There's just so much that... Uh, anyway, they would later make some Sherlock Holmes games, and in 1993, ICOM would be acquired by Viacom New Media. Uh, Moby Games doesn't have anything in their gameography after 1993, save for some re-releases of their classic games on more modern hardware. Wikipedia seems to disagree with this and credits them with having worked on quite a few licensed games while part of Viacom, uh, many of which we will discuss in the future, like games based on a lot of Nickelodeon franchises. That would make sense. <laughs> obviously being part of Viacom. The company ended up dissolving in 1998, a year after they were cut loose from Viacom, two years after their final name change to Rabid Entertainment. Uh, ICOM's portfolio now seems to be owned by former ICOM developers David Marsh, who is listed as the producer of this Roadrunner game, and Carl Raylofs. I'm 
I hope I'm pronouncing that right, who uh, are responsible for a lot of the aforementioned re-releases on modern hardware. So they're doing a pretty good job of keeping those old Mac Venture games uh, available. No, that's good. I'm really glad those aren't stuck in like a file cabinet at like Activision or something. This game was published by Sunsoft, who we mentioned briefly in the last episode when talking about Firepower 2000. Um, I've been avoided talking about them, but their story has an interesting ending to it that kind of related to this game, so we're going to talk about them now. Sunsoft was the video game division of the Japanese company Sun Electronics. Uh, Important to note that this is not the same as uh, Sunsoft as the company that was a division of Sun Microsystems. Those are different companies. Love it when game companies have essentially the same name. Makes it really easy to keep track of everything. So good. Sun Electronics started out in 1971, according to their website's history page. They actually cut their teeth making automatic ticket machines, which was followed by pachinko machines in 1974 and finally arcade machines in 1978. Strangely, their website doesn't say what those games were, but I managed to find out thanks to an archived article from VGARC.org written by Stefan Ganser. Uh, Their first two games were breakout clones called GT Block Challenger and GT Block Perfect. The GT in those titles come from the publisher of the games, Gifu Toki. Making clones was pretty common back then. We kind of touched on that last time, I believe, as well. Pong clones, breakout clones, Space Invaders clones. These were a lot of companies that would later go on to do much bigger and better things got their start doing stuff like that. Exactly, yeah. So uh, Sun Electronics had its hands on a lot of projects throughout the 70s, including its own line of personal computers. Their video game business was little more than making those clones of popular games until um, the 80s, I guess. Uh, Like, for example, in 1979, they released a game called Galaxy Force, which was a pretty blatant Space Invaders clone. As time went on, their games were becoming less clones and more inspired by sort of fair. For example, they made a game called Kangaroo in 1982, which is... A little bit like Donkey Kong, but not exactly like Donkey Kong. There's enough difference there that it could be forgiven. And uh, Kangaroo would become popular enough to get ported to several home consoles, like the Atari 2600, which I think I've actually got a copy of in my closet somewhere. It also got featured on the 1984 cartoon Saturday Supercade, also like Donkey Kong. Oh boy. I have never seen a full episode of that show. I would be real curious to see how that holds up. (laughs) Not great, I'm betting. In 1983, Sun released Arabian, a platform game similar kangaroo in which an arabian prince must save his girlfriend could this have been an inspiration for prince of persia i don't really know why does this game with an arabian theme feature the william tell overtures it's background music i don't know that either (laughs) and i'm also not sure what sun game was the first to actually have the sunsoft label on it but the first one to come to america with that label was sky kid for the nes uh, Sunsoft would really make a name for itself with 1988's Blaster Master, though. That was their their real big break. They also did a lot of work on licensed properties. Sometimes these were really great games, like Batman on the NES, and sometimes they were uh, Fester's Quest. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a world of contrast with Sunsoft. Sadly, Sunsoft wouldn't really make it out of the 16-bit era, though. Uh, at the end of the Sunsoft story, we actually see a sequel to... This game, they were working on a sequel to Roadrunner's Death Valley Rally, where you played as the coyote. That seems like a fundamentally flawed concept for a game. Yeah, so uh, according to an interview with uh, Rene Boutin, B- Botin, 
I'm not actually sure how to pronounce his name either. I apologize. He talked a little bit about the game and in, in its sort of unfinished state. There is a ROM out there of the game. Um, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but apparently it would sort of alternate between chase levels where you're picking up parts of a contraption while chasing the Roadrunner and levels where you would actually put that contraption to use in some way. Because you never actually got to catch the Roadrunner, the Roadrunner would just kind of take off if you got too close. He said that a lot of the game was just kind of ignoring that aspect of it completely, and even he seems to think that maybe the whole idea was flawed. But um, unfortunately, it would never come to market anyway. Uh, Here's a, a quote from... Boten. I'll go with Boten for now, Renee Boten. Quote, in February 1995, the entire staff was called in for a meeting where Sunsoft's president announced that the company was shutting down effective immediately. They kept on a skeleton crew of four or five people to wrap up operations and facilitate the transfer of IP over to a claim, but that was it for production, QA, and marketing. By this time, Looney Tunes B-Ball was in QA at Nintendo, and we had just gotten Speedy Gonzalez to beta, so it was about to go as well. It turned out that Sun Corporation had lost millions on some golf courts investments in Palm Springs, and it cost us all our jobs. Uh, Sun Corporation, the Japanese company, is still around, but its American branch, it sounds like, uh, went belly up at this point. So, uh, like I was saying, there is a ROM of the game online that, uh, you know, in its unfinished state that you can try out. There's footage of it on YouTube. Um, the game was being worked on by Software Creations, who we will talk about when we get to the X-Men game that we've got uh, later on. I will just say the game does not look as good as this one. The sprites are a lot smaller and not nearly as detailed. So I don't know if this was just a result of the actual sprite work not being in place yet, or if they had bigger plans for that, or if that's just the way the game was going to look. I, I kind of suspect the latter, but I don't really know for sure. Uh, it's hard to say with a beta, for sure. Yeah, that's uh, kind of a shame that that's, that's sort of a ignominious end for, for Sunsoft in America. Let's talk about this game. You play it as the Roadrunner, you are, in fact, running on roads, so, you know, so far, so good. Uh, this game is a little bit like Sonic the Hedgehog. Presentation-wise, this game looks really good. Yeah, it looks fantastic. The, the character sprites are nice and big. They are very good representations of their cartoon counterparts. So, you know, I had a really good first impression going in. Then the minute I started playing this, I hit the jump button and I realized, oh no, this is going to be bad. And it is. This game is a, it's a side-scrolling platform game. Uh, Every level essentially is kind of set up to, I guess in some ways, be be a bit like a Roadrunner cartoon. Uh, You're the Roadrunner going through the level, trying to get to the end of it. And the coyote is always in some kind of contraption, just trying to hit you really uh anytime you make contact with him you lose one one point of health and he's more of just like a a persistent nuisance in these levels that don't really have anything to do with him like you said this game is is kind of set up like a sonic game where there's these sort of lengthy stretches where you can kind of just max out the roadrunner's speed and have him zoom through these areas but 
that is really kind of a small part of what this game's actual level design is. The level design in this game, I, I think we can say straight up, is just not good. Even if the level design was good, the way the Roadrunner controls is is pretty dreadful. He's very heavy feeling. Like There's momentum to his movements, but also it feels like he has a really slow and ponderous jump. And also, his sprite is much wider than it is tall. You have to essentially make sure that his legs, which are in the very middle of the sprite, are the thing that makes contact with whatever platform you're jumping onto. Otherwise, you'll just pass straight through it and fall down. Well, not even his legs, but like his his body, which is like a very small part of his sprite when he's... like Yeah, like his torso, basically. I guess you're right. Let's talk a little bit about the way Sonic the Hedgehog's levels are designed, because that's clearly what this game is going for. Sonic levels for the, you know, 16-bit 2D Sonics are these kind of big, wide networks of paths. And you have a few different options in them for kind of which one of these paths you want to take. They all kind of lead towards the the same endpoint on usually the right side of the screen. Kind of the appeal of it is that you, in going through these levels, you know, you could go through them many different times and see different parts of the level, find, you know, different, you know, secrets and different ways through things that will kind of shave time off of how long it takes you to get through them. And and generally, the the whole thing is that as long as you're you're continuing to move forward, you will eventually reach the end of the level because the, 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 the game will kind of, you know, loop you back down to to where the end point of the level is. This game uh, does not do that. This game essentially the same kind of big, wide, tall levels, but it has a very linear path you're supposed to take through them that is kind of just insipid and nonsensical, honestly. Like, it's a bunch of vertical traversal in this game, you know, going along platforms that are just hanging in the air, uh, up in one direction, following an arrow, and then back the other direction, continuing to go up. Eventually, if you do follow all this, you'll reach the end of the level, but there's no real sense of why anything is laid out the way that it is, and it's usually really punishing if you miss any platforms, because usually you'll fall down and lose a lot of time, which this game also has a, a timer that counts down. You have to get to the end of the level before the timer reaches zero. This doesn't work. Like This this is like a fundamental misunderstanding of, of what the level design is is there for in the games that this is trying to copy. It, it's almost like somebody designed a Sonic level, but made half of it mimic a Mario level, and Sonic isn't designed to move that way. That's what this game feels like to me. Yeah, like it's it requires like this the kind of very like precise movement that you can do in a Mario game, and you you are absolutely not capable of that in this. It's not fun. There's elements here that make it seem like it could be fun if there were just a few tweaks made to it. Unfortunately, yeah, this this is just a, a real kind of chore to play. So some things I really found frustrating about this is the fact that like they have these flagpoles that sort of double as bonus items and checkpoints. Yes. So meaning that some of them are in hidden areas out of the way, which means you could find yourself triggering a checkpoint that's hard to actually get back to the proper level from. Yeah. I did that once or twice. Um, I, you know, found myself like uh, when trying to traverse like the sort of platforming sections of a level, falling down back into like near the beginning of the level and triggering a checkpoint that I had not triggered yet, thereby not only 
did I lose progress, but even restarting the level, I would have to start at the beginning again. All sorts of things that I'm just like, I, I, I can't even imagine what you guys were thinking. I don't know why you thought like having these checkpoints double as these little bonus areas was a good idea. That's just a terrible choice. This, this game also has some mechanics that are not immediately apparent. For example, the Roadrunner can do a speed-up move, like something that's almost like an equivalent to like Sonic Spin Dash. But there's a meter that governs how much energy you have. And it, it is not 100% apparent from the off that this is even an option. The first few times I tried playing this game, I would end up in areas where you do need the Roadrunner to be moving at a certain speed to make it up like an incline. And just being like, okay, I can't do that, so what am I supposed to do here? You can also peck at things as the Roadrunner, which is mostly just sort of like, you know, an incidental like attack move you can do to hit enemies, which, for the most part, it, it often seems better to just jump over enemies and avoid them than trying to do that. But when you finally do get to the boss stages in this game, the peck is essentially what you need to do to attack the boss and, and bring it down. And that to me, was not at all apparent. I just did not have any idea what to do, and the game did not, like, signpost it or even, like, let me know that there was an area on the the boss contraption that I needed to hit. Speaking of signposts, this game does have a lot of literal signposts because I, I it, this feels like something they added after the fact because it was like, oh... Nobody has any idea how the hell to get through this level. So yeah, let's just put a bunch of literal arrows in that point people in the ne- in the right direction to go. Yeah, and it's really a shame. You know, the, the first level gets off to a decent start. You're mostly just running through a pretty linear level. There are sequences within the level where you have to beat the coyote in a foot race and then, you know, he'll fall down as a bridge falls behind you or something like that. Yeah. You know, that stuff is kind of neat. You know, I feel like if they had just more carefully crafted this experience around, you know, just the act of running and getting away from the coyote and less on the platforming, this could have been a really good game that really reflected the source material well. I don't know why they added all this platforming for a game that's just about trying to get from point A to point B as fast as possible and with a character that is just not capable of doing this. Yeah, he is woefully ill-equipped for the the kind of technical platforming that the game asks for. It's a shame because you can see what could have been fun here. If you want to play a Sonic-esque game on the Super Nintendo, I would say wait a couple of years and uh, and pick up the, the Sparkster game or possibly Uniracers. Or maybe even Speedy Gonzales. Uh, we'll see if that one's any better. I don't know. I hear it plays kind of similarly, but maybe it, the controls are better. When I see licenses and like really good production values squandered on really poor level design like this and and really poor mechanics it makes me more angry than if the game were just like another mediocre platformer you know what i'm saying i do absolutely Okay, so I guess we're going to start looking at the list here. So a game that I keep going back to is sort of like a comparison for pretty mediocre platformers is Dino City. Yeah. I got through a lot more of Dino City than I got through this game. I think Dino City is a pretty all-around better game than this one, for sure. I'm just kind of like looking a few spaces down. Like, I mean, I would definitely go back to Super Double Dragon before I would go to this game. That's at number 47. So I'm going to keep dropping it down here. Yep, for sure. 
So I think a good place to start for this one might actually be Lagoon at number 59, which is a game that has a lot of things that I appreciate about it, but that has some some basic design decisions that make the game, if not unplayable, not very much fun to play. Yeah, but I mean, I'll still say like, you know, I got a lot further in this game than I did in Death Valley Rally. Yeah, the mechanics were just almost unapproachable. We're talking about this game in pretty negative terms, so maybe we need to start looking a lot lower on the list. For as much as as I can compliment the graphics of this game and the attempt at least at replicating the core structure of the cartoons it's based on, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I'll say this. I think the floor is James Bond Jr. at number 70. It plays slightly better than this, but it's not interesting or terribly fun, and it looks a lot worse. I would personally rather play this game than James Bond Jr. Okay, so I guess we can start looking up from there. We've got Right and Trad at number 69. What do you think of that matchup? This game runs better than Right and Trad, but Right and Trad is, in being just like a version of a tried and true arcade game, it, it is it is more effective, it is more successful as, as being a thing you can pick up and play. I might give this game a little bit of an edge on it just for being a little more ambitious than that. Yeah, I'm I'm a little torn on Ride and Trad because I I think it definitely stops at Super Bowling. I don't I don't think I would put this game above Super Bowling at 68. So I think it's either above or below Ride In. Let's just put it below Ride In. Like the more I think about it, I don't really think I could recommend this game to anybody in the same way that I could recommend Ride and Trad. Roadrunners Death Valley Rally. Congratulations, you're our new number seventy game. You know, again, like presentation wise, they did such a great job. It's so sad to see that they just could not match that level of quality when it came to the actual gameplay. I'm sad. This game made me sad. With that in mind, what do you say we turn our eyes to the world of superheroes? Our second game for today, Spider-Man and the X-Men Arcade's Revenge. So what's going on with this one? Okay, so so I don't have to go into too much history about the X-Men, right? Like, if, if you're listening to this podcast, you know who the X-Men are, right? Probably. Okay, j- just in case. So the X-Men debuted in 1963. They were created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. The comic focused on a team of mutants led by their mentor, Professor Charles Xavier, or Xavier, because Professor X, he, he's kind of a jerk, actually. He's, he ain't good. He ain't good, folks. Nah. <laughs> um... Anyway, the books were obvious allegories for the civil rights movement um, that was going on at the time. As uh, in uh, in particular, these would kind of be allegorical for uh, the gay community as the mutations giving the characters their special powers typically manifested in adolescence. So the, the X-Men, the original X-Men run was not actually very popular. Um, it wasn't until the title was revived and given a major overhaul with new members in the 1975 Giant Size X-Men. That book served as sort of a connecting story between the original 60s run and where the story was going to go under Chris Claremont, who was uh, who would begin writing it after that. This is uh, the beginning of what X-Fans call the Claremont run, which would last from 1975 until 1991. Yeah, pretty much everything that you think about from classic X-Men is from the Claremont run. It all 
more or less started there. We also need to talk a little bit about uh, the Marvel team-up books. I'm not going to go too much into that. Um, the Marvel team-up was a book that would see two Marvel heroes, one of which was almost always Spider-Man, uh, going on some kind of adventure together. This was actually where Arcade, the villain of this game, made his first appearance. Uh, it was in Marvel team-up number 66, featuring Spider-Man and Captain Britain. Arcade's first appearance with the X-Men would be in X-Men issues 123 and 124, sometime in uh, 1979. I didn't look up the exact month, sorry. It would feature Arcade's henchmen abducting the X-Men in the same strange garbage truck with the giant vacuum on it thing that we actually see in the opening sequence of this game. This game is actually kind of a sequel to those two issues. Um, and as it happens, uh, Spider-Man is in that comic as well and sticks around just long enough to try to let the rest of the X-Men know that Cyclops just got himself kidnapped by Arcade. And I guess that's why Spider-Man is in this game? I don't know. Like, surely the X-Men were popular enough at this point that they didn't feel like they needed Spider-Man to, like, zhuzh it up, right? I don't know. I mean, the thing is that the X-Men cartoon just came out the same year that this game happened. So I don't know if, you know, Acclaim said, hey, we really need to push a new X-Men game because of this cartoon or if it was already in development before that happened. And maybe the cartoon coming out affected some of their decisions regarding the game. Uh, it's really strange. I wish there was, uh, you know, an article going more into the development of this game specifically, but um, I don't have that. Uh, I do have some interesting information about the development of this game. We'll get there. This game was published by Acclaim. We've already talked plenty about them. They published this under the LJN label, which uh, we've also talked about a lot. So they published it under the LJN label uh, only on Super NES and Game Boy, though. They used their Flying Edge label for the Genesis and Game Gear ports of the game. Flying Edge was a kind of short-lived label that Acclaim used specifically for some some of their Genesis games. So yeah, we've already talked a lot about Acclaim and LJN, but we uh, have not I don't think we've talked about software creations, which uh, we just mentioned before in the Roadrunner segment. Actually, we may have we, we probably talked about them a little bit back in our super off-road episode. And I know we talked a little bit about the Folan brothers who did the music on that yeah. game. They do the music here as well. You can really tell with their signature MIDI guitar wail. <laughs> I do think the music in this game is pretty high quality. Absolutely. I love the music in this game. It has a very good sort of like early 90s superhero feel, you know, like it's it's absolutely music that calls calls this era of of these characters to mind. Software Creations. This was a studio founded by Richard Kay and Mike Webb in 1986 in the UK. I know uh, UK game development, definitely one of your favorite topics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Kay actually began his career working at Ocean, who I'm pretty sure we've talked about as well. Uh, he actually worked his way up from warehouse worker to programmer and worked on a few titles for them. In an interview with Retro Gamer Magazine in 2013, he says that Ocean continued to pay him a warehouse worker's salary while he was making games for them. He also notes that a lot of Ocean's execs would drive to work in really nice cars, and that kind of irked him. And that would actually lead him to instituting a policy when he founded his own company that everyone who worked on a game would get to share in the royalties from that game. 
A lot of Kay's independent early work was for a company called Firebird Software, doing a few ports of ZX Spectrum games to the Commodore 64 and a few original titles as well. Uh, His first big break came in 1987 with Taito's Bubble Bobble, which the company, um, now with a few more employees other than just Kay alone, ported to various systems and started getting the company some international attention. Uh, Software Creations was actually the first company in Britain to work on the NES console, and according to Wikipedia, one of the first outside of Japan to work on the SNES. I'm not entirely sure how that timeline could have worked, but... uh, Interesting. Unfortunately, their first big project on the SNES, (laughs) which is this game, came with its share of hardships. Um, Here's a quote from that same Retro Gamer article from Kay himself. Uh, talking about uh, while his experiences working on Spider-Man and the X-Men. Quote, Everything started going horribly wrong, and a claim were screaming at us and threatening litigation, and we ended up with three teams on this one game. I went to Portugal with my wife and son, and I got a fax from a claim saying they wanted me to fly home and sort out the problem with the game. I said, no, I'm on holiday with my family, because really there was nothing more I could do. The team was already working on it. I got a fax the next day saying, the guys upstairs have said, because you won't show commitment, we're pulling Mortal Kombat. So Acclaim had secured the publishing rights to Mortal Kombat on home consoles, and up to that point had planned to have software creations handle the conversions. After this exchange, they gave the project to someone else. Um, Don't exactly remember who, but we will talk about Mortal Kombat in the future and get to that. Kay says that later on, he spoke with an executive at Acclaim after he'd already left Software Creations at an E3 conference. And that person told him that he probably blew royalties in about the $40 million range across all the consoles. It's a huge blow to Kay that he never really recovered from, he says in the article. Yeah, that's sad. That is an awful thing for a claim to have done. Like, I mean, just the idea that, like, it'd be so put out by this guy not leaving his vacation to, like, you know, essentially just, like, symbolically go back to work on this game where there was nothing else that he himself could have done for it to take away this, like, major deal from them is uh is pretty awful and acclaim sucks y'all yeah acclaim is not good yeah and you know what the acclaim story as far as they're concerned with this company doesn't even end there the uh studio did make a few more games like tin star and plock both of which we will talk about when we get to those respective games um plock in particular i can't wait to talk about yeah that's that's an interesting game uh so k decided to sell the company in 1994 and it ended up being merged with rage software and it would eventually get acquired by acclaim in 2002 and become acclaimed studios manchester and so they ended up sinking with that ship (laughs) yeah One interesting thing that he did say in that quote was that he had three teams working on the game. Now, this is just speculation from me, but that would explain a lot, specifically why Gambit and particularly Storm's levels and HUDs are so much different than Spider-Man, Cyclopses, and Wolverines. This game is largely a action-focused side-scrolling platformer. It has different levels for each of the x-men that are in the game and also for spider-man it starts off with a spider-man level where basically spider-man has seen the x-men get kidnapped by arcade and he is trying to find them so there is a scavenger hunt level that you have to play where you go around a kind of maze-like map 
collecting devices and blowing up robots as Spider-Man. And once you finish this level, you're given a, an option to select from Spider-Man or one of the X-Men who's been kidnapped, uh, which would be Cyclops, Wolverine, Storm, and Gambit. And each one of them has their own their own section to play through that is sort of, you know, to some extent tailored around their particular capabilities. They, they're all some version of the same kind of gameplay where basically you're you're go, you're you have a very small sprite going around a pretty large map and you are or are, are in, in all of these are you just trying to get to the end of the level yeah you're pretty much just trying to get to the end of the level typically to fight a boss uh the one exception would be Wolverine's second level in which he's being pursued by a robotic juggernaut and your only goal is really to just destroy Juggernaut. Typically, it's going to require you to go through the entire level because it just takes that many hits to take him out. So actually, um, I do want to talk a little bit about Arcade as a character because I, I think that'll make it, you know, yeah, totally. make a little bit more sense as to like what's going on with this game. So Arcade in the comics is an assassin who gets pretty bored just killing people off. I actually had to search through the Jane Miles Explain the X-Men archives. Uh, check out that podcast, by the way, if you like X-Men, just to kind of learn a little bit more about Arcade. Yeah, so he, instead of just killing off the people that he is hired to murder, he kidnaps them and puts them into his giant murder amusement park that he calls Murder World. Now, we don't actually know who has hired Arcade, to do this game anyway. In the comic, it turns out it was Juggernaut and Black Tom Cassidy. Yeah, like, I can understand why Arcade makes for a compelling villain in the context of a video game, because he essentially is a video game villain, even in the comics. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the setup is perfect for a game. This makes absolute sense as a way to structure a game about the X-Men, where you give them all lots of different stuff to do, yet you can have a lot of different environments, and it all just kind of works together. You mentioned before that there's there were three different teams working on this game and that that is borne out by the content of the game itself. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? And again, like this is speculation on my part. I do not actually know that this is where the delineation happened. But in the Spider-Man levels, the Wolverine levels and the Cyclops levels, um, they all have a very similar HUD. They just have a health meter score and, and a display for how many lives they've got. Um, they each have, you know, their own kind of attacks. They have no real limits on their attacks, except, you know, like what their attacks are. Wolverine can uh, unsheathe his claws and he can punch either, you know, with his claws or without them. Cyclops shoots lasers and he can also punch and kick. And Spider-Man can uh, shoot webs as a sort of offensive attack. And he can also shoot a web that allows him to swing, um, you know, because uh, Spider-Man does whatever spider can and all that. Spider-Man can also climb up walls where, you know, the other characters can't. Gambit's levels are a little bit different. For one thing, his energy meter looks different, and he's also got a limited amount of ammo. Um, he actually runs out of cards throughout the level, and he doesn't have any other attacks. Like, he doesn't use his bow staff or anything like that. He doesn't punch or kick. He can only use cards, and he also has an expendable uh, power called the Joker, which just engulfs him in flames and kills everything around him, a power I'm fairly certain he does not have in the comics. But you have to collect uh, more cards in order to uh, keep attacking. If you run out of cards, you're just kind of kind of screwed, really. Um, every time he kills an enemy, though, you do get like a card pickup that'll give you like seven more cards. So if you aren't 
wasteful, it's pretty hard to run out. Now, Storm controls even more differently than that. I don't get why they did the Storm levels the way they did. Storm's predicament here in the game actually mirrors her comic book predicament more closely than any of the other characters. Okay. She was actually in just a room slowly filling up with water and had to figure out how to get out. Here it's a little bit strange because her, her health meter is also her air meter. So if you get hit while underwater, you know, that that can be a problem. But if you can surface, you'll just replenish your health. It's actually a mechanic that kind of works. It's weird that seeing as how Storm can fly, she can't just get herself out of this one. But video game logic, okay, I'll deal with it. So just to be clear to, to folks, the Storm levels are all water levels in this game. They're all swimming. Storm cannot get out of the water. And yeah, like Link just described, uh, she she essentially has an air meter that goes down whenever she's underwater that fills back up whenever whenever she she surfaces. Completely different than any of the other characters in the game. Yeah, and like Gambit, she's got some special powers that require the use of consumable items that she collects. The objective with her levels is that you have to destroy these devices that will raise the water level so that you can continue navigating through the level. Um, ultimately leading to a showdown with a contraption that you either need to destroy or just avoid and get out of the level alive. Her levels are very, very different. So much so, in fact, that there's actually, uh, I know this because I used to play this game a lot as a kid, there's a little um, mini level that each of the characters have to navigate after you've completed all of the main levels. And they actually take Storm out of the water and give her a regular sprite like the other characters for these uh, segments. She still can't fly, but she can jump very, very high. There's a lot of things about this game that are really strange. Like, for one thing, Gambit's inclusion here feels real weird because he was a pretty new character by this point, and it seems like he must only be in this game because the cartoon happened. Yeah. Obviously, the original comic books happened long before he was even created, so he was not in the original uh, story arc against Arcade. Uh, so he kind of replaces Colossus and Nightcrawler here. Oh, no, nobody will miss those guys anyway. Uh, we got Gambit. The the Colossus thing in that uh, comic book was kind of great. Um, he was being convinced that he was actually a sleeper agent and turned on the X-Men to become the proletarian. Oh, and- man. <laughs> And he wears overalls with a picture of Lenin on them. Oh, my God. That's amazing. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> I love it. I really love it. Yeah. I digress. Um, it's all the more strange because none of the X-Men are wearing their outfits from the cartoon. Like Wolverine is in his uh, his brown and tan outfit and not the sort of yellow and blue one from the cartoon. Um Cyclops is wearing his. Uh, how did you describe it earlier? Uh, his his human condom outfit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of the blue and yellow with the the kind of detached visor thing that he's got going on in the cartoon. So I, I think I'm more surprised to see these characters in a game in, after the cartoon came out, not looking like the cartoon characters. The idea that possibly there were multiple teams of people working on different parts of this game really does make sense because this this feels like a fairly disjointed game in a lot of ways. Yeah. 
I think this is the biggest flaw of this game. It is frustrating as all get out. It, like some of the levels aren't quite as bad. Like the Spider-Man levels are not terrible. You can muddle your way through them. They're pretty straightforward. You know, Spider-Man is kind of swinging through various like construction sites and destroy. Everybody's basically fighting robotic versions of more popular villains because, you know, it's arcade. Arcade's not actually making deals with Apocalypse to get him to go after Wolverine. Wolverine's fighting a robot Apocalypse. He's fighting a robot juggernaut. Uh, Gambit's fighting a giant playing card with the king on it that kind of looks a little bit like Black Tom. I, maybe that's what they were going for. I don't actually know. You know, Gambit just do what Gambit do. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it would make sense. Okay, so he's fighting Black Tom in the first level, and then he fights the Black Queen in the second level. So, okay, there you go. I guess that kind of makes sense. Gambit's levels, Gambit's being chased by a giant spiked ball. You have to, like, keep moving, and his levels get really frustrating because the, the minute he touches any enemy, he just takes a massive amount of damage. Yeah. Um, Wolverine's levels are kind of straightforward. They do a cool thing where, um, you know, he does refill energy, but also if you defeat certain enemies without your claws, you get bonus energy from that. So you kind of keep your health topped off, which I kind of liked. Uh, previous games dealing with Wolverine kind of like gave you a penalty for using your claws too much, which I think this kind of rewarding you for not using them is a better way of going about that. Because I agree. Yeah. He's Wolverine. Why wouldn't he always be using his claws? Right. Totally. Um, the way they did that stuff is pretty, is pretty clever in this game. Storm's levels are all right. Like you said, they're underwater. They're kind of frustrating, but not too bad. Cyclops levels are awful. They're the worst. I hate them so much. Cyclops is wandering around a mine for some reason. He has to jump into mine carts because if he touches the track, it's electrified and it's an insta-death. There's a lot of things in the Cyclops levels that are insta-death. I think his levels are the worst. The way that Cyclops's eye beams work in this game is very frustrating, just in like a basic control sense. Whenever you activate his eye beams, you're rooted to the spot and you can kind of angle his shots with them up or down or straight in front of you. But like very rarely our enemies placed in a way where they are easy to to actually hit with any of those versions of the I-beam aside from the straight ahead one. And the fact that like it makes you stop in place whenever you use it means that these already kind of tricky platforming sections with insta-death become much, much easier to die in. This game also has a problem, especially in the Cyclops levels, with having to make blind leaps, which is inexcusable when the sprites are as small as they are dinky little sprites like they would be at home in a game boy game they're animated well enough but they're just so small that you really don't get a good sense of the character from them and you know because it's an arcade game you do have some license to kind of use whatever backdrops you think work but it just doesn't feel very x-men-y to me i don't know what do you think i agree they're kind of generic backgrounds in a lot of ways like i think the one with the most sort of personality to it is actually wolverine's levels you know, I, I still don't know how X-Men-y they feel, but, you know, the fact that you're fighting giant toys and things like that in, in the first one is, is, you know, that's that's a fun situation. But yeah, like, it, it kind of feels like, I mean, yeah, Cyclops is just in a mine, and Gambit is in, like, a weird black void that I don't 
I don't really get any sense of what that space is even supposed to be. You get a sense of like games and stuff because all the enemies are chess pieces, I guess. But it just doesn't feel like there's much that's like particularly specific to this fictional universe going on in there. So it's a weird melange of different stuff. And I mean, I don't know why this bothers me as much as it does, but the fact that the game starts you out with this Spider-Man level where you have to go around this map uh, collecting collecting these devices like in sequence before you can even get to any of this stuff seems really obnoxious to me. Oh, it is. Like, it's an incredibly tedious level to go through because, yeah, you have to collect these things in a certain order. Yeah, and you have to go through this, I think, every time you start up the game if yes. you want to, to play any of the other stuff. Yeah, that level um, also includes probably the worst sound effect I think we've heard in a Super Nintendo game. The sound effect for Spider-Man's spidey sense going off it sounds like interference on like a telephone basically it's awful i mean like they almost get the feel of these characters like i think spider-man is by far the the most well done here powers wise because like he can yeah. attach himself to walls the web swinging is pretty decent and you can actually use that as an attack as well if you run into an enemy while you're doing that you'll do damage to them you know his attack is fine but you know i just feel like as spider-man i should be able to do a little bit more why can't wolverine climb walls with his claws yeah, that's something right? he gets to do in other games why is cyclops shooting his lasers in like tiny little bursts instead of like just the full-on beam you know why is gambit throwing his cards in arcs instead of just like throwing them straight forward like there's yeah there's just a lot of things where i don't feel like i'm as powerful as i feel like i should be as these characters and again the game is just frustrating the graphics are they get they get the job done they're pretty they're pretty muddy though and you occasionally do get things like the the genuinely horrifying sprite for spider-man climbing walls <laughs> he looks like a mutant alien dog when he does that like it is rough you also do get the cool background elements in wolverine stage with like the the teeth opening and closing that looks kind of gross and it's but it's kind of cool uh, that that stuff is pretty cool actually like most of the like actual design elements that i like in this game are in the wolverine stages like the 30s gangster uh jack-in-the-boxes yeah that stuff's all good and, and it feels very true to, like, the, the arcade thing. I could easily see arcade putting character into that kind of murder trap, for sure. I played this game a lot as a kid because this was the X-Men game that I had on Super Nintendo. Like, around the time when I was watching a lot of X-Men and playing a lot of Super Nintendo and, and those two things were overlapping, this was the X-Men game that I had. So I played it and I muddled through it and I enjoyed it. But, yeah, looking back on it now, I it's not great. It, like... The X-Men games on the Sega Genesis were maybe like the one thing that made me kind of jealous of Genesis owners because that was the X-Men game that I wanted. That They looked more like the X-Men. It felt more like the X-Men. Luckily, we would get Mutant Apocalypse much later on, but um, it's going to be a while before we get to cover that one, unfortunately. For sure. For sure. There's stuff to like about this game, but it is just so frustrating. It makes it really hard for me to recommend to people. I feel really kind of the same way. I don't have the childhood nostalgia for it that you do because i never played this game as a kid but yeah i can see there's there's some good aspects to this and and just a lot of stuff that, around them that makes it very hard to to like this game for for the good elements it has well should we go to the list and uh figure out where this one's going yeah so where where are you thinking about 
starting out on our, our look at the list here. So I think it's going to go up considerably from here, but I, I think we'll just start from the Roadrunner game since we just talked about it. That game did a really great job of bringing those cartoons to life. This game does not do a great job of really being representative of what we would think of as the X-Men at that time. But I think the X-Men game plays better than the Roadrunner game. I'm looking at stuff that's up a little bit further. And it's hard to find stuff that's like a really clear, direct comparison to this. I mean, we've got, you know, Ride and Trad, Super Bowling, Super Baseball Simulator 1000, which, good Lord, is that still our highest ranked baseball game? It sure is. <laughs> Man, baseball has not had a good showing on this system. It pains me to say this. I think... The ceiling for this is Krusty's Super Fun House at number 55. Mm, yeah, I think that is probably fair. I think this game is probably more successful at doing what it what it's trying to do than, say, Axley is. I mean, Axley mops the floor with this in terms of presentation, but it's also, I, I think, a, a fairly not unplayable, but not very fun game. So I would probably put it above Axelay. Above Axelay, right above it, is Hyperzone. It's, I would probably still put put Spider-Man and the X-Men above Hyperzone as well. Well, looking up a little bit, like we've got Lagoon at number 59. Would you put this above or below Lagoon? I think this is probably the right place to be looking at it, actually, because I think that there are kind of similar issues with this. Yeah, like my, my gut tells me that this goes above it, but that might just be my nostalgia talking here. I think that Lagoon really kind of shoots itself in the foot with with the choices it made when adapting that game to the Super Nintendo. Even though I, I do think Lagoon probably is better than than this game in terms of presentation. Getting pretty close to to what we've agreed on is our ceiling here, Krusty's Super Fun House. Uh, you know, uh, what do you think about Just Above Lagoon? Part of me wants to put it just above Arcana at fifty seven, but I think I could I, I think I could live with this going just above Lagoon if you don't think it goes any higher than that. I'm a, I'm a little bit hard pressed to say that I think this game is really more recommendable than True Golf Classics Pebble Beach, mm-hmm. which is at 58. Yeah, which I I know that we've talked about the issues that that game has and how it's kind of overreaching what the Super Nintendo is technically capable of at this point. But I do think that it is a much more confidently put together production than than this game i think i can deal with that i think i can go uh so this will be our new number 59 yeah all right all right well congratulations spider-man the x-men arcades revenge not quite top 50 but top half of the list just barely this puts it almost like right smack dab in the center which i think is where this game belongs it is an incredibly middling game i think i'm fine with that so i think that's going to do it for today we are going to have to push back um prince of persia because that's another one that's going to have a ton of history behind it i guess we can take a look at what we are going to talk about next time so i guess that's going to be prince of persia road riot 4wd and super star wars indeed i think that's what we have going on there we hope you guys enjoyed this deep dive into the history of a couple of media properties and a couple of game companies and we hope you do join us next time for probably a little bit more of that, honestly, and also some probably pretty substantial talk about some some fairly noteworthy games. All right, folks. Well, that is going to do it for us for today. And uh, just a reminder, um, you know what? Keep pulling down those Confederate statues. We don't need them. We, really, we don't. Get rid of them. Change the names of all streets named after Confederate people. Get rid of the statues. Keep fighting the good fight and uh, take care of everybody. Uh, Until next time, everyone, thanks as always for listening. I am Steampunk Link. I'm Emmy Zero. Play it loud.
Our intro outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Techno Axe, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty free at technoaxe.com. That's T E K N O A X E.com. I will say one thing. I do like that the shoulder buttons are mapped to just letting the Roadrunner do the <laughs> meep, meep or the, the tongue thing. Yeah, so that's actually the thing I was going to mention is that. Oh, were you? Uh, I think it's very funny that he does like a single meep whenever he gets hit. And it just made me think of the thing from the Poochie episode of the Simpsons, <laughs> the like kind of June foray stand in that does itchy and scratchy's voice mentions that she does. She did the meep for, for the road runner, but they only paid her to do it once. And then, and then doubled it up on the audio track because they're cheap. I did think back to that while I was doing research on this, like, Oh yeah, they did that gag on the Simpsons about the road runner. That's right. So I thought about that literally every time he got hit in this game. <laughs>